0: (laughs) That's right. Sit down. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. I'm Michael Flake. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Hope you have a great Memorial Day weekend. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's always great to be together as a church family, both in the Y and online. Great to worship together this morning. Fun to see so many of you in person as we start to rebuild the habits of worshiping together and serving together on Sunday mornings whether you're cautious about Jesus curious about Jesus or committed to Jesus there's room for you here this is a safe place to learn to grow and to change so long as you don't have it all together you'll fit right in the round reminds us we're all active participants as we stay on this journey together we're all here to receive something this morning but we also all have something to give so as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love We can also pour out love by serving others. I don't know if it translates at home. But there's a little rumble in the system today. It's kind of nice, it's going to fit the sermon very well. Well, today we continue in our series of sermons. It's a year-long, all 2021, a year-long series of sermons called The Story. We're trying to look at the big picture of the Bible, that God, from the beginning of time, has been writing a great story in this world, and He calls us to come and find our place in it. We're trying to make the Bible a little less big, a little less intimidating, and so we have a number of resources, like reading plans, like videos, that we're putting in our weekly email and online so that you can learn more. There you go, lakeforest.org slash LFCD, the story. This morning we begin volume five, volume five of eight. This morning we begin volume five, volume five of eight. In volume one, God created the world and created humanity in his own image. And yet humanity and all of creation have been lured into rebelling against God. In Volume 2, God made an everlasting promise, an everlasting covenant with Abraham and Sarah, promising to bless all the peoples of the world through their family. And then over the generations, that family grew so large it became a people, the Hebrew people. In Volume 3, God delivered that people from slavery in Egypt, and He led them to their home, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In Volume 4, the Hebrew people unified into a kingdom the kingdom of Israel, and they had kings like King David and King Solomon, and God promised that through King David's descendants he would establish an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. Does any of that sound familiar? If you have never been here before, none of that has to sound familiar, but I just summarized the last five months of sermons in two minutes. That hurts me a little bit. Pete, you've written sermons, right? That's a 15 to 20-hour investment, a pop, and I just did five months of those (laughs) in two minutes. In Volume 5, the problems of the kingdom will intensify because Solomon dies, and when Solomon dies, the kingdom splits into two. The people in the north, the tribes in the north keep the name Israel, and then the handful of people, the handful of tribes in the south will adopt the name Judah. So, we have a divided kingdom now. We have Israel in the north, we have Judah in the south. Now, David's line of kings are in Judah, right? We need to hold on to that because that's where that eternal throne God promised is going to come from. So, Ezra in the north, Judah in the south, David's line of kings are in Judah. But now we have two kings, and we're going to have two kings for a whole bunch of years, and most of them are horrible. There are, in fact, entire books of the Bible called First and Second Kings that list out the kings and say, this guy was horrible. This guy was horrible. That guy was actually pretty good. This guy was horrible. This is a loose translation, but that's basically what those books do. Now once the kingdom divides, the Bible's focus shifts to the prophets. Once the kingdom divides, the Bible's focus shifts to the prophets, and the prophets are God's appointed watchdogs against idolatry and injustice. When we hear the word prophet, we often think someone who predicts the future, and sometimes God did give the biblical prophets a vision of the future, but more often what the prophets were doing were serving as God's appointed watchdogs against idolatry and injustice. As the kingdom started to crumble, God would send prophets time and again to point God's people back to Him. And the prophets would say, turn away from other gods, turn away from hurting the most vulnerable, and return to God, return to God's ways, return to God's mercy. Worship God, not all these little gods, worship God. The prophets would repeat this over and over and over again for centuries, Return to God, return to God's ways, return to God's mercy, worship God. So, Volume 5 is really about the prophets, and it's a hard time for God's people. It's a very dry time for God's people. It's one of those times in life that, that feels like a desert. Do you ever have times in life like that? The dry times, the times that feel like a desert? We all do. We have dry times relationally, we have dry times spiritually, we have dry times emotionally. There are times of blessing, and times of abundance, and times that are like the blooming of spring, and then there are times that are more like drought, times when things wither, dry times where you're just trying to make it through. And today, we are looking at a very dry time in the Bible, and the, the, the theme of the sermon is dueling gods in dry places. Dueling gods in dry places. How the dry places in our lives will force us to a new clarity about who we really worship. How the dry places in our lives will force us to renewed clarity about who we really worship. Dueling gods in dry places. So here's the backstory. story. We're looking at the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. Wonderful. They have a king named Ahab. Ahab marries a woman named Jezebel. That does not bode well. When your name still has bad connotations millennia later, that does not bode well. 1 Kings 16.32 says, He, Ahab, set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Now, let's stop here. Samaria is the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. So, Israel's capital, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel build a temple in the capital city. But the temple is not to God, the temple is to Baal. And Baal, if you don't know, is sort of the forerunner of Zeus. So Baal is often depicted as being a big man with lightning bolts or as being a strong bull. So, so, so most folks who study the, the origins of, of mythological gods and all this, I'm not sure what you can get a degree in that. but largely track Baal as becoming the forerunner of Zeus. So if you, you want to understand it more in the, in the gods you may be familiar with, it's like they built a temple to Zeus in the middle of God's kingdom. They built a temple to Baal in the middle of God's kingdom. And then Jezebel starts to go out and recruit people to serve as the prophets of Baal because they're trying to get God's people on board with worshiping a whole new God, so they need these prophets to help convince the people to do this. Jezebel also says she's going to kill anyone who still says that they are a prophet of God. This is where we meet a fellow named Elijah. Elijah is, as the young people would say, the OG of the prophets. That means like the original. I think it means original gangster. Is that what it means? Is that what the young people say? Okay, good. <laughs> He's the OG of the prophets. He is the, the prophet by which every other prophet would be measured. He, he comes in the same way that Moses became almost the symbol of the first part of the Old Testament and the law. Elijah became the symbol of the second part of the, the Old Testament and the prophets, because he's like the prophet. He is the original in so many ways. He is the one who stood up in a very hard time. We meet this fellow named Elijah in 1 Kings 17. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You know that expression, everyone always talks about the weather, but no one ever does anything about it? Don't say that too close to Elijah. Elijah is a wild man, and God raised him up as his prophet in a very scary time, because he goes to King Ahab, and at the risk of his life says, I am God's prophet, and it will not rain for years unless I give the word. In fact, that's what happens. For three years, it does not rain. And Ahab becomes so furious about this drought that he tells anyone who sees Elijah to turn Elijah in so that he can be killed. Now think about that. God's prophet is at the top of Israel's most wanted list. That's where we are at this point in history. But the dry times in life have a way of getting our attention. The dry times in life have a way of refocusing us. The dry times in life might break us, or they might break us open to new possibilities, new purpose, new life. And 1 Kings is showing us that sometimes the dry times in life come because we are rebelling against God. When we walk away from the source of life, things do start to wither. But other times, the dry times in life are just part of life. We didn't really do anything wrong, but God's trying to get our attention. After three years of no rain, God had the people's attention. They were willing to do whatever it would take to get those heavens opened back up. And this gets us to the passage that Chad read for us earlier, in which Elijah, the wild man, God's prophet, shows up, and tells Ahab, invite the people of Israel, and invite any, anybody else, the prophets of Baal, just invite them down to Mount Carmel, to the base of Mount Carmel. And a bunch of people show up, including 450 of these prophets of Baal that Jezebel had gone out and found. And it looks like we're about to have a situation on our hands. 1 Kings eighteen twenty one. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Oh yeah, we definitely got a situation on our hands now. Elijah is forcing the issue. Elijah is going to deal with this head on. And the dry years have made the people willing to go along with it. The dry years have made the people willing to go along with it. So you may remember Elijah's plan from the reading earlier. He says to the 450 prophets of Baal, y'all build an altar, and I'll build an altar. Actually, he was from the northern kingdom. You guys build an altar, and I'll build an altar. You guys kill a bull, I'll kill a bull. You guys put the bull on your altar, I'll put the bull on my altar. And then we'll wait to see which of our gods engulfs the bull in flames to receive it as a sacrifice. Where does Elijah come up with this stuff? I mean, I've gone to some planning meetings that took a strange turn, but never that strange. Elijah is a wild man, and he's just what God's people needed in this moment because he trusts God to vindicate himself. He trusts that God is going to vindicate himself and leave Baal's prophet with their their bull. So, the prophets of Baal start shouting. They start dancing. They start dancing around the altar. They start doing all kinds of things. And then Elijah starts taunting them, saying, shout louder. Maybe Baal is asleep. Maybe he's busy. The Bible summarizes the prophets of Baal's efforts this way, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. In their moment of deep need, no response, no one answered, no one paid attention." These 450 people are working like mad, but they have no hope. What's it like to be in a dry place and to realize no one paid attention? Now, I will be the first to admit that in my dry places, I don't always get crystal clear responses from God. I don't always get crystal clear answers from God. But I know, I know that I know that I know that my call has gone through. I know that He's heard me. I know that He's listening. And I know that He's preparing something, even if I cannot yet see it. But there are so many things in our lives, and we shape our lives around them, but then in our moments of deepest need, they pay us no attention. And the dry places force us to look up and ask, where will my help come from? Where will my help truly come from? What have I built my life around that pays me no attention in my time of deepest need? Where will my help truly come from? So the prophets of Baal continue all their frantic work. Elijah sets out to build his altar. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. So Elijah makes his altar out of 12 stones, which is actually his commentary against the whole divided kingdom thing. Elijah remembers what God has done in the past, and so Elijah emphasizes the unity of God's people even in a time of division. He emphasizes the unity of God's people even in a time of division. Then he puts his dead bull up on the altar, and then he douses it with water because why not? He's a wild man. Now it's getting late in the day. This is the time when people would ordinarily make a sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal have really been putting on a good show all day. Elijah, not so much. The people are gripped with anticipation of what will happen. Will one of the gods receive the offering here at the end of the day, dueling gods in dry places? Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Oh, so this is where Elijah got some of his ideas from. God told him to do it that way. God wanted to set up a showdown between himself and Baal. God wanted to set up this showdown. God is not afraid to set up a showdown. And if you've been with us for the last, I think, Three and a half months, then you would remember that when they, the people got the Ten Commandments earlier in the story with the capital S, when the people got the Ten Commandments earlier, the first two commandments make clear God will not entertain any rivals. God will not entertain any rivals. So, when the people then, as when we do it now, when we turn away from God to shape our lives around other things, God is not afraid to set up a showdown. And Elijah continues, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that You, Lord, are God and that You are turning their hearts back again. Now you and I don't chase after Baal, but our hearts do turn to so many things, hoping that they will deeply satisfy us. We look to things like success. Whether professionally, in our athletics, in our studies, in Christian ministry, we look to success. We can look to acclaim, to being well thought of. Some of us look to self-sacrifice or even to saving the world, maybe to wealth or to power, or at least political power for the people who think like I do. We can look to relationships. We can look to the hope that all of our personal desires will be fulfilled. Well, somehow, some of these things, one of these things, somehow these things will fill this deep void inside of us. And yet, often in the dry places, God turns our hearts back again. Again. I love that little end of the phrase at the end, turns our hearts back again. There is just something in us prone to wander, and God turns our hearts back again. This is what happens when we worship together, that God reminds us who He is, and God reminds us what He has done, and God turns our hearts back to Him again so that we might turn to God in every season both in abundance and in drought, we might turn toward God in every season, that we might trust our lives not to Baal and not to ourselves and not even to the ideals of our age, but that we might trust our lives to the God who from generation to generation to generation has called people to Himself and invites you and invites me and invites all of us to find life in His eternal embrace." Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Talk about a defining moment. God gets the people's attention. Now, Elijah never specified where he thought the fire should come from, only that in the duel the true God would receive the sacrifice with fire. Where did God make the fire come from? He had it fall from heaven. Why from heaven, do you imagine? Perhaps as part of turning the people's hearts back again, because what has this whole thing been about? Who really has the power to open up these heavens? The people have not seen anything fall out of the sky for three years, and what's the first thing they see fall out of the sky after three years? Fire. Talk about a defining moment. (laughs) turning of the people's hearts back again. As if God is saying, I can send anything I want out of the sky. The people fall to the ground. They cry out to the Lord. Baal and Baal's prophets have lost their grip on the people's hearts and the people's minds. And in fact, as the chapter 18 ends, there's a dark storm cloud starting to form on the horizon that the dry period is about to be over but not before God used it to turn the people's hearts back again. Dry times don't last forever, but often God uses them to turn the hearts of of people, of you and me, of people we love, of people we don't yet love, to turn our hearts back again. So remember what Elijah first said to the people. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. Dueling gods in dry places. And then God set up a showdown that could not be won by an idea could not be won by a belief system, could not be won by hard work, could not be won by sincere desire. It's a showdown that could only be won by a being who is living and active and powerful. Elijah knew that God was capable of consuming the bull with fire. Now, at least from the Scripture, it does not tell us that God promised to do that on the first day, or the tenth day, or the thousandth day. but. Elijah knew that God was able to do it and that God's rival was not. And so, Elijah had a deep confidence that in all situations, God is able. In all situations, God is able, that God is worth following. God is worthy to be followed because in all situations, God is able In all situations, God is able. And in our lives, we will encounter plenty of dry places. We will experience dueling gods in those dry places. And the duels will not be decided by appearance, because Baal's prophets worked a lot harder. The duels won't be decided by popularity. Baal's prophets outnumbered God's prophets, 450 to 1. The duels won't be decided by power. The king and queen had thrown all the force of their office behind Baal. The duels will be decided by what is true, by what is true. If God is God, then follow Him. That's what Elijah said, by what is true. If God is God, then follow Him. But if someone or something else is truly worthy of your worship, then follow that instead. In the dry places, we will likely realize that we have contorted our lives around things that may have been good things, may have been important things, may have been bad things but that we have contorted our lives around things that were not worthy of our deepest worship. Many of those things, in fact, that pay us no attention in our time of deepest need. And so, the New Testament says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters… In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. At the base of Mount Carmel, there are two altars, and you and I must decide… On which one will we climb? Which one leads to death and which one leads to life? Which altar will falter and which altar will alter? On which of these altars will the fire of God's Holy Spirit fall and make us truly alive? Romans 12 says the greatest act of worship is not showing up on Sundays, although we hope you will. It's not getting here early, although we hope you will. It's not singing, although we hope you will. It's not taking notes, although we hope you will. It's not giving financially, although we hope you will. It's not asking for prayer, although we hope you will. It's not serving others so that they can worship, although we hope you will. The greatest act of worship is giving your life into God's merciful hands to climb up onto God's altar, not so that you will die for Him, but so that you will live for Him, a living sacrifice. One who recognizes there are a lot of wonderful things and wonderful people in the world, but none of those altars can bear the full weight of your life. But with God at the center, with our lives in the merciful and nail-scarred hands of Jesus. We come to love the right things and love them to the right amount, not too much, not too little, just right. When we reserve our worship for God alone, we find that our love flows more abundantly. When we reserve worship for God alone, when we are narrow in our focus of who we truly worship of who who our lives can be truly built around, when we narrow the focus of our worship, we find that that expands our ability to love more abundantly. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, as our act of true worship. So the question I'd like to leave you with is this one. Hmm. This summarizes my week pretty well here. How insights from 1 Kings 18 will help you. Or, that's not even English. What, what am I doing? I've been getting over a bacterial sinus infection this week, and uh, clearly I have been. How insights from 1 Kings 18 will help you. That's not good. Like, what was I trying to do on this slide? How will insights, there we go, how will insights from 1 Kings 8, should I keep this unchanged for the 11 o'clock service? What a great wrap-up to the sermon. How insights? How will insights from 1 Kings 18 help you or someone you know navigate a dry time in life? Just, what I, just how I said it there. Oh, I got a text, hold on. This is Carol from Davidson. Can I have your diploma back? Oh. <laughs> That's bad. How will insights from 1 Kings 18 help you or someone you know navigate a dry time in life? There you go. There you go. How will insights from 1 Kings 18 help you or someone you know navigate a dry time? in life. The truth is, the message today may have been for you, or it may have been for somebody you know. They may not have heard it. How in the world will they ever learn the big ideas? Well, good news, they have a minister they trust. They have you as a follower of Jesus, or if today or in the future, you become a follower of Jesus. Getting to be a minister to one more person is a privilege, and the truth is, you may be bold like Elijah, or you may not be. Elijah was a wild man. You may not be a wild man. I don't know but the good news is God is faithful. God is trustworthy, no matter how timid or bold you are. And so, may our lives say to ourselves and to the people we know that God's put in our lives, turn to God, turn to God's ways, turn to God's mercy, worship God, and find your love expanded. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God about what He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer.